0: Jeremiah chapter 32. Did you know that it takes 70 hours and 40 minutes to read the Bible cover to cover? It actually takes 52 hours and 20 minutes to read. If you're reading at a casual, you know, pace, like, a, like they actually call it pulpit pace, like if a pastor is reading the Bible. Um, I'm not sure what that means. But... <laughs> It takes 52 hours and 20 minutes to read the Old Testament and it takes 18 hours and 20 minutes to read the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament Psalms takes the longest as far as the books go. It takes four hours and 28 minutes. And the New Testament Gospel of Luke uh, takes two hours and 43 minutes to read. And we are now currently on a 15 year plan uh, as we go (laughs) verse by verse. Uh, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Athey Creek. So we're taking it uh, slow. And and sometimes people say, Brett, you know, you shouldn't worry about the speed, but I do. And I'll tell you why. It's not just that I'm just trying to, you know, hurry us through the Bible as much, but, you know, I'd like to get it done before we all die. That's one thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, people say, well, my pastor was in the book of Romans chapter one for 10 years. I'm like, that's great, but you know, you won't even phone famous Romans when you're like a senior citizen. Like that's not, you got to get through the whole Bible. Uh, and so there's a certain pace that I do target and I try to shoot for. And it's one that I think is really helpful. And it's proven over time, by the way, is some of the young people in our church, I want them to go through at least a good section of the Bible, you know, before they go off to college. And I want, I want you know, people to, uh, you know, I've noticed that, People do kind of cycle through churches, you know, ten, fifteen years. Uh, they kind of say, "Okay, we kind of heard that, and we've done that, and been there, and we hate everybody there now, so we're going to go to another church, or whatever they do." But uh, I've noticed there's a cycle of people uh, that happens in churches and church life. So I've, I've kind of found that 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 pace. I've always I've always liked to you know uh, keep it at a certain pace in our current study. I'm praying about the next time through uh, when we reach the Gospel of John. Um, that'll be our that'll actually mark our third time through the Bible or, you know, starting our third time through the Bible. I'd like to do the old J. Vernon McGee through the Bible in five years. Did you know he did it in five years? He skipped some of the chapters. If you notice, he'll say now chapter 35, 36, and 37 is about spoons, forks, and knives of the temple. And then he just kind of goes along like he just (laughs) covered that, but it's called a survey, a survey through the Bible. And that's totally legit too. And I like that. And I've prayed about that. That might be our next one because getting the Bible, see, that's the second reason, not just that I, I want to finish the Through the Bible series before everybody dies. But also, there's a certain context of the Bible as it relates to the various speed of the Bible. Like, for example, if you were to take a, um, you know, a Bible vacation, uh, I just told you you could read the, the whole Bible in 70 hours. Uh, you know, that's an interesting 70 hours and 48 minutes or whatever. And so, so that, that's actually shorter than you think, or even the New Testament, you know, um, I, I was thinking if you could read the New Testament in 20-ish hours, man, take a New Testament vacation uh, and just go and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a vacation, but, you know, we're gonna do certain hours of the day. We're gonna read through the New Testament. You know, if you have nothing else to do, what a great idea just to read through the Bible. But reading the whole context of the New Testament in 20 hours, I think there's real value to even that. Um, getting context and stuff. So that's something we have to kind of remember is um, the Bible is not... Uh, you know, a book that should just be kind of spot checked here and there. And we need to read the whole thing and it, it all fits within a context of itself. And, uh, and, and the reason that's so important is because other parts of the scriptures unlock um, some of the most uh, mysterious scriptures. In, in other words, you wouldn't really know what it's all about unless you actually read other scriptures. Tonight here in chapter 32 uh, of Jeremiah, we're gonna see that. There's, there's something I hear that I think is tucked away and it has to do with stuff we've been learning about. Remember the dual fulfillments of Bible prophecy and even triple fulfillments of Bible prophecy, how it ripples throughout history, some of these prophetic events that the Bible talks about. Well, as it turns out, tonight's one of those things where I think we see a sort of a, um, an illustration from the Lord to Jeremiah that's gonna echo not only from his day, but all the way to the end of the world. And uh, we're gonna see that again tonight. And I think it's just glorious how the Bible is, is not a boring book when you start comparing it to itself and seeing the way it interacts with itself and uh, the, the pictures and the illustrations that really comes to life. And I hope we can see that tonight. So tonight we have the issue of Jeremiah's title deed. We're gonna see Jeremiah's title deed um, uh, to a piece of property. And um, we also know that Jeremiah is in prison. Uh, you know, under Zedekiah, the king, remember Jeremiah had been prophesying that, you know, the Babylonians are coming. And that you, he says, you guys need to submit yourself to the Babylonians. Don't fight against Babylon, but just submit yourselves. And, and, um, and some of you will be taken into captivity, but the Lord will bring you back into this land at some point. Well, the people hated that and they rejected Jeremiah's word, punched him in the face and threw him into prison. (laughs) Poor Jeremiah. But while he's in prison, the Lord shows him something and reveals something about um, what's going on that I think is gonna be interesting for tonight's study. So the first thing we're gonna see in verses one through five is the situation. Uh, If you're taking notes, number one, the situation. It says there in verse one, The Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now pause for a second. This just sets the date. We know the exact date, uh, or I should say at least the exact year of when this, uh, this took place. It was in 587 B.C. Uh, because that's, that would be the 13th year of King Nebuchadnezzar and the 10th year of King Zedekiah. We know that from other points of history, but also other parts of the Bible. We know that this would be 587. Now, does this year ring a bell? It's close to another year. That's probably one of the most infamous years in all of Israel's history. Does anybody know what year that would be? Right, 586. Now remember, we're going backwards in numbers because it's BC, the BC days. So the numbers are going down. So 587, Jeremiah's in prison, this prophecy is given. It'll be the next year that that final wave of Babylonian invasion, 586 BC, would finally destroy Jerusalem, destroy Israel. And all of the Jews would either be killed or taken into captivity. Um, Horrible time in Israel's future. So we're right at the cusp, right at the edge, kind of like the days you and I are living in right now. I feel like we're in the 587, only that is, you know, it's 2021, right at the cusp of something. It, It feels like we're at the cusp of something and all the stuff that's going on in the world points to the, the, um, the end of time is near. The Antichrist is coming, world leader is gonna come, the tribulation period, uh, you know, the rapture of the church, uh, the, the, um, the, and after the uh, tribulation, then the second coming of Christ and then the millennial kingdom. I think we're right at the cusp of that, it's possible. I wouldn't say for sure, and I wouldn't name a day nor the hour, but the Lord says the times and the seasons you will know. And uh, we have plenty of evidence. And if you missed our prophecy update on Friday, uh, I'd recommend that you get caught up on that because I talk about um, how the United States and our government as it's turning out and some of the events, even the last week or two um, are only facilitating a world scene that's gonna really be commensurate with what the Bible says is gonna be the world scene. And we're seeing that kind of come together, all the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. And uh, we'll be talking more about that in future uh, Prophecy Updates, Uh, unless we get raptured first, that could happen too. But 587 BC, um, the situation continues here in verse two. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. Now uh, the court of the prison and king of Judah's house would probably be there uh, in the palace of Jerusalem. Uh, we might even know where that was archeologically. Uh, um, and you can even see sort of ancient dungeons in some of the archeological digs of, the, uh, of this, this era of Jerusalem. Um, and it's kind of fascinating. You can climb down into these dungeons and you almost wonder sometimes, I wonder if this is the dungeon that Jeremiah was standing in or was stuck in. But uh, he was there in the prison in the kings of Judah's house. So there was a palace prison there. Uh, For verse three, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, uh, uh, saying, "Wherefore dost thou prophesy?" Sometimes people will shut up people that don't want, if you don't want to hear what they have to say. Um, uh, once in a while, they'll try to stop speech uh, and things like that. A lot of times in history, you see that Zedekiah does that. He shuts old uh, Jeremiah up. Um, well, all that to say, uh, he shut him up saying, wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with, his mouth, uh, with him mouth to mouth, eyes, his eyes shall behold his, his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon. And there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper. So the situation is, Jeremiah's in prison, Zedekiah threw him there and shut him up so that they could stop hearing what he had to say. That's interesting, you know, the days we're living. Um, now this, this king says, shut up, I don't wanna hear what you have to say, but it's gonna be to his own demise. One of the things that we uh, have to remember, and I hope we can remember this as Christians, you know, we can speak the truth and we can preach the good news and share what the Bible says, but, you know, we can leave the rest of it up to the Lord. Jeremiah didn't have to panic here, he didn't have to freak out. All Jeremiah was responsible for is doing what the Lord called him to do, and the Lord takes care of the rest. And all this, you know, you think, wow, Jeremiah's at a real disadvantage here. He's in prison, Zedekiah's holding all the cards, everything's great for him, but we know the story. That's not true, Zedekiah's about to go down. By the way, this is where we compare Ezekiel's account and where some, you know, uh, goofy Bible skeptics that are trying to say the Bible is contradictory because Ezekiel, the prophet said that, you know, Zedekiah would never see Babylon. And here, Jeremiah is saying he's gonna go to Babylon uh, Zedekiah is going to Babylon. He's going to see eye to eye, uh, you know, the, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and it's a contradiction. Did he go to Babylon or did he not? The Bible's contradictory. Well, um, the language is great. And, and does anybody remember what's the secret to the answer to that? Anybody? Right, good. I just want to, that's kind of a fun thing to know. Uh, Zedekiah's eyes were poked out before he got to Babylon, so it's true. He did not see Babylon. Uh, That's the truth. Ezekiel was correct, Uh, but so was Jeremiah. What was the last thing Zedekiah saw? Well, two things. First, he saw his sons killed right in front of his eyes. That's the last thing Nebuchadnezzar wanted Zedekiah to see is his sons slain right in front. Can you imagine that? And then Nebuchadnezzar was standing right there watching the whole thing. And so Zedekiah saw Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye and then they poked out his eyes. That's the last thing he saw. So it's really something, this horrifying day and and Zedekiah is just blowing it off. Yeah, it's nothing, no big deal. And there's a lot of people today that don't realize there's great peril coming. I know I sound like one of those, you know, sandwich board guys, the end is near, doom and gloom, you know, and all that stuff. But as Christians, we know it's only gonna uh, turn out good. All things are working together for good for those that are called, for those that love the Lord, that are called according to his purpose. We know that the Lord is gonna protect his people uh, through those times and, and uh, it's good. Even as, even as there's gonna be you know, some of the Jews like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that will be taken into captivity, still the Lord's gonna protect them. By the way, once in a while, you know, uh, post-trib rapture people, people believe that the tribulation is gonna happen, then the rapture, that one of the accusations they make of, of people that are pre-tribbers like us, or the people like that I believe in a pre-trib rapture, they say, you guys are just trying to escape. And I always like to say, Luke chapter 12 says, pray that you be counted worthy to escape these things. Uh, Jesus said that. Uh, but but even, even to say that, I, I sort of joke a little bit because um, If you really pin me down, I'm not trying to really escape much. And I'll tell you why. Because throughout history, Christians have been persecuted brutally. Like, um, you know, I I know that the the Great Tribulation is going to be worse than any other time in history. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. Read Matthew 24. It's going to be horrible. I don't believe we're going to be here for that time. But that's not to say... um, that I don't think it's possible that you and I or Christians could go through great persecution before the rapture of the church. The reason I say that is the post-tribbers are always kind of looking crazy saying, you know, you got to prepare the church to go through trouble and tribulation because, you know, you, you're just trying to, everybody's, you know, going to be and Then they'll be thrown into tribulation, unprepared to stand for Jesus in the last days. That's ridiculous. Um, I, one of the things we talk about all the time is persecution could come before the rapture of the church. Radical. Persecution could come before the rapture of the church. Well, Brett, should we get bunkers and guns and store up Cheerios? Um, that's what a lot of the post-trib people are doing right now. But I don't believe that's what we're supposed to do. Um, I, I, you can be wise and have, you know, stuff that, you know, in case uh, the power goes out and, Cataclysmic things happen. You can you can be prepared, but the whole prepper mentality and you know defend your home and shoot people if they're hungry and come and get food. There, there's definitely not that in the Bible uh, about you know knock 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 on your bunker, you know, can I have a bowl of Cheerios? Boom! God bless you. <laughs> that's not that's not Christian. Uh, that's not a Christian behavior. Um, so this whole prepper and we're gonna we're gonna live through this and we'll be the only ones who'll live. Be careful. There's a there's there's a balance here. I think that we could go through trouble in trials. Um, and trials. And I think in moderation, you know, being ready for trouble and preparing your heart. Um, but you know, there's Christians that have been persecuted horribly uh, throughout the history. Um, you know, and, and have you ever wondered how will you do if your faith really could cost you your life in that, in that very moment? Um, we have modern examples of that. I mean, one of my favorite heroes is Cassie Bernal, Bernal. Uh, If you know who she is, remember the Columbine, you know, school shooting? Um, That girl, Cassie Bernal is is one of my heroes. She was just a, you know, uh, what, 17 year old girl who was at school one day and these guys started shooting up everybody uh, in the school. Um, But they were asking people crazy questions, but it was questions like this. This one guy, uh, uh, his name doesn't deserve to be repeated, held a gun to Cassie Bernal, this, this beautiful young Christian girl. Um, and he said, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? If you say yes, then I'm gonna pull the trigger. After he'd already killed a bunch of people. And he says, says a stir and this young girl just says, I believe in Jesus. And he killed her right there. Like that's a true Christian martyr in our modern days, you know, and, and that's here in America, on American soil, uh, that, that happened, you know. Now, there's been things like that on other countries and other nations for centuries and millennia, really. Uh, Persecution has been something, it's been around the world forever. And the reason I say that is, you know, as, as we enter into a kind of a different era here in America, I wonder if you and I should be perhaps more cognizant of the fact that being a Christian is becoming less and less popular. I remember when Rosie O'Donnell, that bastion of great information, uh, there on that amazing True Show, The View, back when she was there. Uh, this is back like in 2006, I think it was. She, um, they were talking about 9/11 and how we were responding to the various, um, you know, um, radical Muslim uh, agenda around the world and the United States attacking certain nations and stuff. But she, she made the case that. Christianity is exactly the same as radical Islam. And she made this whole statement, just kind of thinking that, um, you know, she could just make this remark. And I remember thinking, wow, uh, that's, that's somebody not knowing their history very well. Um, you know, Jesus told us to love our enemies. Muhammad said, kill all your enemies. Uh, like if you just want to know what a fundamentalist is, look at, look at the very fundamental, who started the religion? A fun- fundamentalist Muslim follows Muhammad. A fundamentalist Christian follows Jesus. And Jesus wasn't going around chopping people's heads off and, you know, fighting battles and stuff. That was Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad told Peter, put away your sword, Peter. And Jesus laid down his life. You know, Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll, you'll gain life. Um, but if you try to keep this life, uh, you're gonna lose this life. Like Jesus had a very self-sacrificing heart and attitude. And I think that's something in, in days where we might see Christian persecution around the world. I wonder if we really could be thinking through and praying about, Lord, how would I deal with real persecution? We don't even know what real persecution is. Oh, somebody laughed because I was a Christian. It works. <laughs> I'm really sad about that. Whatever, Uh, try being someone with a gun to your head and and, uh, your life on the line if you believe in God, if you're a Christian. Man, I sense that there's trouble coming. It seems like in our world, unless something radically changes, that thing that Rosie O'Donnell brought up back in 2003 or whatever that was, uh, when I, we were all shocked that she was comparing Christians with Muslims, and by the way, after that, the academics, the college professors, and even high school you know, teachers and stuff started teaching more and more that Christianity is the same as Islam, and you know, they blow up uh, innocent women and children, and the Muslims in streets, and Christians blow up abortion clinics, like that happens all the time. Uh, like they were making really ridiculous uh, comparisons and stuff, but I think that what I'm seeing happening in our country right now is is sort of echoing some of those those um, posturing statements that academia has been planting in the seeds of young people you know some, some of you older people might be thinking, how can people be thinking this way how can people take certain you know things that have happened and just ascribe it to an entire people group and just say they're all you know uh, hateful, horrible people um, you got to understand they've been for decades planting the seeds of information in young minds and very convincingly so. Um, So, you know, the thing is what could happen to us as Christians? I think we could face persecution. One of the things, you know, I always uh, like to do if I want to get really depressed is read Fox's book of martyrs. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? How many of you guys have read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Raise your hands. Okay, definitely not a fun read, but a very important read of early Christians from the first century, uh, well on in through history of Christians who died for what they believed in. And uh, man, it, it'll make you feel like a total wimp. Uh, wow, I was really depressed when that person laughed because I went to church on Sunday. Um, or that person you know, got mad at us because we're gathering, even though you know, you know that the coronavirus is killing everyone. Don't you know everyone's dying because of coronavirus? Crickets. No, we're actually going to church and we've been worshiping for almost six months now uh, in, a, in a church and uh, not one coronavirus case that has popped in because of church. Like what's going on there? What's going on? Well, there's a narrative and then there, there's a control. And one of the things that people are not gonna like Christians for is uh, that uh, the, the, we don't really like to be controlled by anybody but the Lord. We like to go with the word of God and say, we're gonna follow what the Bible says. And what people are gonna find is there, there will be those who will say, I, I will follow the word of the Lord over a- anything else. And when, when, the, when the government asks us to do something that's contrary to the word, that's the time where you have to say, we're gonna follow the word and do what the Bible says. Now that's, that's important to, to me because that's, that's good that you're going with me through the Bible because I think there's a problem with those that think they know the Bible and they say, we're gonna go with God on this one. And what that means is we're gonna go with guns and we're gonna revolt and we're gonna rise up and do all this stuff. Well, that's not really what the Bible teaches. It's just not. Um, I hope that one of the things that we do is keep our heads and, and constantly ask this question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do about what's going on in America today? Uh, and we need to be more and more like Jesus. And that's a real key. Uh, as we get closer to the last days, I think we're gonna be challenged in our faith uh, and we're gonna have to decide what we're gonna do. Are we gonna follow Jesus and worship him and believe the Bible and do what the Bible says, or are we gonna go with the world and the ebb and flow of what the world's saying politically? Um, I believe that you and I as Christians in America are gonna be held accountable for our faith, perhaps more than we've ever been, maybe in the history of our country. Uh, coming in these in these near near future, we'll see we'll see how it goes. But things are shaping up that way. That's for sure. So uh, Jeremiah, this book of Jeremiah. Every time I read this, you know, I I tend to think, wow, what a what a 2021 kind of guy Jeremiah was. He was living in days that parallel in similar ways ours. But here he is being silenced. Here he is thrown in prison. And here he is with a message that the the, the rest of the world doesn't like. And that's the situation, verses one through five. Well, then we come to an illustration. God's gonna give Jeremiah another one of these sort of object lessons, an illustration, and that'll be verses um, six through 12. It says in verse six, and Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, behold, Hamamiel, the son of Shalom, Thine uncle shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field, that is, in Anetot, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Um, so, verse 8, So Hananel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is, in Anatot, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. When did Jeremiah know that the word of the Lord was confirmed? When the thing happened. The Lord told him in prison, verse six uh, the word of the Lord came to me that Hanum, uh the son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come and offer you to buy a field. Jeremiah tucked that away and said, okay, we'll see if that's the word of the Lord or if that just was the, you know, bad shawarma I had in the night before. Um, uh, which one was it? Well, suddenly, Hamamel shows up and offers to sell a field. So he says, well, I think the Lord was, it was from the Lord then because it, it's actually happened. Who goes to some dude in prison and says, I got a piece of property that, that I want to sell you? Now, now here's where you and I, as the way we do, um, you know, real, real estate and, and transactions and what have you, we miss a bunch of stuff here because the, the Jews had a very different way of doing this stuff. But there's some words here that might be familiar if you've been going through the Bible with us. What, why is this, this uncle uh, from Anatot, remember that's where Jeremiah was from, that's his hometown. Why was this uncle coming to him in prison of all places uh, to sell him a piece of property, but using the word redemption. Uh, why, why would that word be used in, in the, uh, a land deal where Jeremiah is buying a land deal? Well, it has to do with the, the fact that he's the relative of Hanamiel. And, um, and he says, I pray thee, um, buy my field, which uh, for the right of inheritance is thine and for the redemption it is thine to buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. What's going on here? Um, This has to do with the the kinsman redeemer role. uh, Someone who has the right to redeem something that's part of a family. And uh, man, I don't have time, but we've done whole teachings on the kinsman redeemer. You can look that up on our uh, website. And you know, the book of Ruth is a whole beautiful story about the, the near kinsman and how that whole redemption takes place. But what's happening here is Jeremiah has the right to buy this piece of property. Now, this is gonna be an illustration God's gonna use for all of Israel to see um, of what's going on in the world with the Jews and with the land of Israel. But before we get into that illustration and what it actually means, we need to talk about what a a deal would look like in Hebrew times. You see, um, they had the same thing we do in the sense of a title deed to a piece of property. There would be a little scroll that would be uh, written, the definitions of the property and the requirements that would be to keep that property And sometimes it would be financial requirements or they would require you to use it for farmland or just various requirements. And the way they would do this, and this is something we don't do anymore, but it's important as it relates to the Bible and the the Hebrew way of doing things. They would take that title deed as a scroll and they would roll it up, but they would would give certain requirements and each requirement would have a seal, one of those wax seals, you know, with a, a seal impressed on it, like the signet ring seal. You know, where you'd you'd roll it up and say, this much money is to be paid this time. Seal, roll it up. This much money is supposed to be paid by this time. Seal. And sometimes there'd be a few different seals sealing up the scroll. And that scroll would be opened only as the seals were sort of, the requirements were met with each seal that was opened. Are you guys with me so far? Now this is important because... Um, Jeremiah, we're gonna see him with a a scroll and it's gonna be put in some pots and it's gonna be sealed, but it's also gonna be, part of it's gonna be left open. And you think, what's that all about? It has to do with the opening and the requirements that will be met of this title deed to the property that Jeremiah is about to buy. And that's gonna be part of our story here in a minute. But before we do that, can I show you something that a lot of people miss? And we see this here in Jeremiah, but we see it also in the book of Revelation. Would you turn there with me? Revelation chapter five. Did you know that there's a title deed to the planet Earth? The entire Earth has a title deed um, according to the Bible. And the question is, who has the title deed to planet earth? Well, I'll, I'll just give you the, the you know, the CliffsNotes. You can look this up and it takes a bit of study to kind of figure all this stuff out. But God gave dominion, uh, you know, the title deed over to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were created, Adam and Eve had the title deed to planet earth. But what happened was they didn't fulfill the requirements. uh, And one of the requirements was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not sin uh, there in the garden. Um, And so what happened there in that sin, remember what happened as soon as the, the earth was in a perfect condition. It was paradise, if you would. But as soon as they sinned, the earth was in a fallen state. Their thorns and man had to work by the sweat of the brow and pain in childbirth and all that stuff happened where suddenly this world, this earth, it changed. Why? Well, it changed ownership from man to Satan. That's why God in his word calls Satan the prince of this world, or the, Jesus called him the God of this world. Little G, he's not a real God. He's a felt false God, of course. But, but Satan has the title deed to planet earth. And by the way, um, the reason that's important for you to know is because people sort of wonder, well, if God is love, then why are bad things happening? When you look at the earth and the situation today that we're seeing around the world with disease, and death, and warfare, and earthquakes, and tidal waves, and uh, you know, hurricanes, and just you know stuff that's just catastrophic that we've watched in the, in the last several decades, and we think, where is God? Well, right now, God does not have the title deed to, to planet Earth nor does man, it is Satan, who uh, is the prince of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air is Satan, the Bible says. Um, And so we have to realize that's the reason the earth is in a fallen state. But we have here in in Revelation chapter five, the story of when the earth, the title deed will change back. And it's gonna have to have someone open the scroll of the title deed who's worthy, And by the way, the reason Jeremiah was worthy to buy that certain piece of land is because he was the near kinsman. He was the kinsman. Are you guys with me still on this? Um, Now, who's the beautiful kinsman redeemer pictured from the book of Ruth and all that? Well, we see Jesus is being pictured there. But I digress. Let's go go to the story here in Revelation 5-1. It says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, that's God, a book written within, or better translated, a scroll, uh, written within and on the backside. By the way, um, very few scrolls had writing on the front and the back. But it would be a title deed that would have writing on the front and the back. That's what gives us the signal of what kind of a document this is. Uh, written on the front and the back, sealed with seven seals. What does that mean? Uh, see the average American reader seven seals, uh, what is this like a circus and seals bouncing balls on their noses? No, this is a title deed. And there are seven requirements that would be for a person, uh, to have. And we're going to see what happens when these seals are opened up, but check it out. It says, um, uh, verse two. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither look thereon. Now that's bad news. That means no one is able to get the title deed back from Satan. Um, There's seven requirements that would be Uh, the seven seals that would be required for someone. And there's this rhetorical angel running around, who is worthy, mighty angel, who is worthy to open the seals of this book? And it's crickets. And so because of crickets, verse four, John, as you see in this vision, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And then it says, verse five, one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? None other than Jesus, the son of David. Jesus is the only one who would be worthy. The near kinsman, the one able to open the book and loose the the seals and take back the title deed. And and then you'll see um, what happens when the seals are opened and the earth is judged. And it's the the rest of the book of Revelation kind of tells us how that all shakes out. But the ultimate deal is that the Lord's gonna take back possession of the earth. And after those seven seals requirements are, are fulfilled, then the Lord is gonna come and rule and reign and will be brought back into sort of a pre-Adam and Eve era where there's gonna be peace and tranquility and no more sin on the earth. It's gonna be glorious. So it's quite a drama that's long-term. The beginning all the way to the very end has to do with this title deed. Now, the reason I share this Revelation chapter five with you is because this is the same kind of title deed that Jeremiah is gonna be dealing with. And it might be the ripple effect of the prophecy that Jeremiah is gonna show. So let's go back to Jeremiah We know the situation, um, but now we see this illustration of this title deed and this land that Jeremiah has the right. He's the the right to redeem. He's the family member, even though he's in prison. Isn't that interesting? Even though Jeremiah cannot reach people and he's just there in prison, his uncle comes and says, hey, will you uh, you have your banker, uh, you know, take care of this financial thing for me? Well, check it out, verse nine. And I bought the field of Hanumaniel, my uncle's uh, son that was in Anatot, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him in the, uh, him in the money in the balances. So I took the evidence that was uh, of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom and that which was open And I gave the evidence of the purchase to Baruch. Um, That's Jeremiah's sort of secretary, by the way. Baruch, the son of Neriah, uh, the son of uh, Maasea in the sight of uh, Hanamiel, my uncle's son, in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. So this is a big deal. They're all seeing Jeremiah do this deal. It's almost like you know when you buy your first house, you go down to the mortgage company and you have to go and meet the mortgage broker and sign the documents and you know, show your, your uh, driver's license to, the, you know, to the, uh, you know, the person that makes sure you are, who's that person again, the notary. You gotta have the notary there. That's what's going on here. You got the notary, you got the secretary, you got, but all the people in the prison, of the palace there, are going, what's going on down there? And they're all watching Jeremiah purchase some property that was his right to purchase because it was his relative. So uh, that's the illustration that's going on. Now, the Lord's gonna give some definition now. That's point number three. We got the, the situation, verses one through five, the illustration, verses six through 12. But then thirdly, we have God's definition of what's going on here. He says in verse 13, And I charged Baruch before them saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, signed documents, sealed documents, um, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is opened. The implication is some of the seals were closed still and some were opened. Um, That means that it wasn't fully uh, a done deal yet. Um, but take this evidence, both sealed and unsealed, and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days, or it'll, it'll stand for a long time. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, Jeremiah's going to go, huh? What? Lord, what are you talking about? I'm confused and, and we'll we'll see Jeremiah's questioning what's going on here in this whole little ordeal in verses 16 through 25, we'll see that in a second. But before we leave this, it's basically the Lord saying, uh, Jeremiah, buy the property, I want people to, to know that people are gonna be back in this land and they're gonna live on property again. And uh, part of it's sealed and part of it's unsealed, it's still left in a question mark, but I want you to take that halfway done mortgage document and put it in an earthen vessel. Question for you historians. Can earthen jars uh, uh, preserve documents? We know the answer is yes, uh, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, does anybody know about the, I hope you guys all know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's really quite a miracle. But back in 1946, a little um, shepherd boy was there uh, going around the desert region of Qumran, near the Dead Sea in Israel. And he was hiking his sheep up this little rocky cliff and there's these little cliff holes and caves and stuff. I've seen this and been there several times, but this place called Qumran. Well, he lost one of his sheep and he was trying to find you know the little sheep that maybe snuck away. And so he thought one of his sheep went deep down into a cave. And so he he threw a stone way down in this cave um, and when he threw the stone, he heard the crashing of what sounded like a pot, pottery, like a shattering. Um, so he was curious. So he got a torch and he, and he walked back into this cave and he found these jars. And these jars contained something that was perhaps the most important archaeological find um, maybe ever. I don't know. But it was hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament that were very, very old. Like the book of Isaiah. There's a manuscript of Isaiah that's 300 BC. Like that's going back a ways. And by the way, what's so great about that for you guys uh, that maybe have to deal with professors saying, the Bible we have today is nothing like the Bible of the, you know, you know, the first century. The, the Old Testament's been changed around too much and we can't rely on all this. Well, that's ridiculous. In fact, it shut the mouths of those uh, so-called uh, scholars Because they used to say the book of Isaiah, we know nothing of what really Isaiah really said because time over thousands of years, the book of Isaiah uh, has been contorted and changed. That was their claim. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found pretty much the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And as it turns out, it was almost to exact word for word, uh, all the way back to 300 BC, exactly the same words we have today. That's an amazing thing. If you take a Hebrew Bible today and the Hebrew Dead Sea Scrolls and you match them up, there was no changing. And the whole idea that it was, you know, over time changed, it was was falsified and shown, it was called fake news. Um, Now, all that to say, uh, I love that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls because it really shut the mouths of so many critics for so many centuries, really. Um, But, But, all that to say. Uh, by the way, you want to know one of the oldest scripts that was ever found? Um, you know, from Numbers, where you and I sing, "The Lord bless thee and keep thee; the Lord make his face to shine upon thee." At the end of Wednesday nights, um, well, that they, they found a little, uh, little uh, vase, very fancy one, that contained that uh, blessing uh, from num- the book of Numbers, and that's the oldest one of them all. Is this the one that contained that little blessing? of the Jews to the, to the people. But any, anyway, it's great, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and if you could picture in your mind's eye, that's the idea that God says, I want Jeremiah to stuff that scroll into a, a, a vase so that it can last a long time. And the implication is that this would take some time before the Jews would come back and take the land. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, they lasted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, um, really. And, um, and Jeremiah's scroll, I wonder how long his is going to have to last. Well, this is where at least 70 years before the Jews would come back um, to the Holy Land, that'd be sort of prophecy fulfilled number one, first fulfillment. When Jeremiah's people, uh, you know, 70 years after the captivity, they were brought back. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, remember those? That'd be the first fulfillment of this opening of the scroll and then taking the land back. The second big version of that or ripple of prophecy that would take place is remember AD 70, the Romans would totally drive the Jews out of Israel, crush Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem would be out of Jews uh, for almost 2000 years. But guess what? The Jews would start to, and this is where it gets really interesting. um, and, And again, the narrative is lost because there's political agendas. But did you know the Jews started buying up their land again? The Zionist move, movement, Theodore Herzl and those guys in the 1700s, they moved back to Israel starting you know, in the 1700s and really flooding in the 18 and 1900s, even to today. The Jews, they would come and they bought up the land uh, um, from, from the Bedouins and whoever was there at the time. Now, this was when Israel was still called Palestine. And what's so funny to me is um, the, you know, if you believe the world's narrative on this, you you think that Palestinians are the ancient people that lived in Israel, but they're not. They're really Jordanians, they're Arab people. And they came much, much later. The Jews were there way back. All the Canaanites, for the most part, they're all extinct. They've been, the, the people the Jews drove out of the promised land back in Joshua's day, they're gone. Um, Well, Brad, it's the Philistines because Palestinian means Philistine, the same word. It is the same word, by the way. But it was one of the, you know, it was um, uh, one of the Roman emperors named Hadrian who renamed Israel Palestine because he wanted to spite the Jews. Uh, And he knew that the ancient extinct Philistines were the worst enemies of the Jews. So he thought, let's call this Palestina. Um, and that's where they got its name. And even tried to change the name of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina, um, which was a, you know, worshiping of the solar system and stuff like that. But th- that one didn't really stick. But Palestine as a name stuck from the time of the Roman empire all the way to the time when uh, 1948, uh, Israel becomes a nation again, May 14th. And they changed the name from Palestine to Israel. Well, then what about the poor Palestinians that lived there for centuries? There were no such thing. When the Jews in the 1700s started moving over to Israel, they did something that is kind of amazing and and nobody wants to talk about this and here's why. There's a narrative out there that says those Jews in Israel, they're occupying the land. They're occupiers. You'll hear that on all the news people, these, the occupation. Now, one of the things President Trump declared is the Golan Heights, which was one of the more contested areas of Israel, saying the Jews are occupying the Golan Heights. He declared it, and it's not occupation, that's Israeli territory. That made people mad for like 10 seconds, but th- for some reason, they just kind of forgot about that for, for uh, you know, Trump to say Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, even though it had been for 70 years, he just confirmed it. And when the United States said that, the rest of the world had to say, well, okay, we recognize Jerusalem as the capital for the Jews. That was a big deal. But largely because much of the world doesn't wanna recognize Israel's right to exist. They don't wanna recognize that, that the Jews have any right to land. So they like to call them occupiers. They occupied that land. And it's, it's, it, in fact, it's almost as ridiculous as this. Let's say just for a second, Canada attacked the United States tonight because they wanted desperately to have the state of Washington and Seattle. They wanted the Canadian border to go and Washington would be theirs. And so they sent their military down and we're shocked. The Canadians attacked us and took Washington now, what do you think we're gonna do? Are we gonna just sit by and say, oh, well, I guess that's by Seattle. It was by snowing yeah." Um, and suddenly all the, um, the Seattle people are like, uh, how you guys doing, hey? Eh? You know was like, suddenly it's like Canada. No, no, we would, we would say that's our land. So then let's just say, pretend we defend uh, and we get all the might of the United States Army goes and attacks and takes back the state of Washington. Um, and and we redraw the border like it was before. And then the world looks at the United States and shakes, shakes their heads sanctimoniously and said, oh, you Americans, you're occupying the state of Washington. I can't believe you've done that. You're a horrible people and you've killed Canadians and you're horrible. Um, that's exactly what happened to Israel. Israel was driven out by the Romans there was a, a few thousand years, but, but not only did they not take it back with hostile force, they came back and just said, we'll buy the land. And hundreds of thousands of Jews came with money that they had gained from Europe and other places around the world and started buying up the land. How many people groups can say in the world that they've actually purchased the land with money? You know, and they're calling them occupiers. That's the amazing thing. Uh, Americans, we have no voice in this matter. If you're an American and you're saying the Jews should give back the land to the poor Palestinians, then you should give your house and your property back to the American Indians. Because you're way more guilty than any Jew in Israel. You didn't pay for your land like, well, I did. I, I No, 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 you gotta understand. The Jews literally came in before it was even called Israel and they paid for the land that's theirs and, and, then, and then brought it back to life. Okay, so Brett, you're saying that this happened, this land thing that we're about to hear what God's saying about with Jeremiah. It's this ripple effect that God's saying, you're gonna be brought back to the land and you're gonna, you're gonna own that land again. That's what Jeremiah's point is here. And that happened after the first you know, spreading away, uh, you know, AD, uh, or pardon me, BC 586, the Babylonians. The second one, Romans attacking Jerusalem, AD 70. But the third fulfillment of this was in the 1700s and all the way to May 14th, 1948, when Israel becomes a nation again. And I believe this was the third and final fulfillment of the multi-layered prophecy that the Lord's showing Jeremiah here. And it has to do with property and ownership and has to do with the promised land, the Jews and Israel. Are you guys still with me? Have I lost you? I'm sorry I jumped into all that history, but... It's important for you to know that, especially with all the false narratives that are out there. Um, You go to any, you know, secular college and university, their history profs will totally tweak that story. Uh, If you're interested, by the way, um, there's a a great book called From Time Immemorial, um, From Time Immemorial. And it goes over the history of the land of Israel. And and it's it's, it's not a light, Reading, uh, but it is a exacting and well-documented book on the history of Israel. But all that to say, I forget the author's name. Anybody remember the author? Okay. Well, uh, number one, uh, we've got the situation verses one through five. Number two, we have the illustration of the scroll, the property, the redeeming, verses six through 12. Number three, we have the definition by God. What's this all about? In verses 13 through 15, God says, the houses and the fields and the vineyards of Israel will once again be for the Jews in this land. Even though you're about to be trounced and dragged off into captivity, this is hope. Do you remember? We talked about chapters um, 31 through 33 are the um, books of consolation. We're still in that. And this is a consoling book. But the fourth section, Jeremiah raises the question to the Lord, what are you you talking about? I don't get it. But one of the things that you'll notice about the godly people um, in the Bible when they're gonna ask the Lord a question, it's never bad to ask why. Lord, why are we going through this? Why are we doing this? That's not a bad thing to ask if your heart is right. But one of the things I've noticed is before a person says, why Lord? And they get a good answer oftentimes it starts with them remembering the good things the Lord has done. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. That's a good way to approach the Lord. Do you know that brothers and sisters? And Jeremiah is gonna model that. He's he's gonna scratch his head and say, I don't know what this is all about. I'm about to ask you Lord, but before I do that, I'm gonna give you some praise and credit for all that you've done. And let's see how he does that in verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord saying, O Lord God, behold, thou hast made heaven and earth by great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel and among other men, um, and has made thee a name as at this day. And hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, with a stretched out arm, and with a great terror. And thou hast given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law and have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts or the catapults. They are come unto the city to take it. That's the Babylonians, you know, besieging Jerusalem. He's saying they're here. Um, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. and. What thou hast spoken has come to pass and behold, thou seest it. And thou said to me, O Lord God, buy thee a field for money and take witness for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Do you understand what Jeremiah is doing here? The last sentence there is the question. The first part, uh, you know, verses, basically verses uh, 16 through 24 is him saying, Lord, you're amazing. Everything you said has come to pass and you're a powerful and mighty God. Just just amazing. You can just study that praise that Jeremiah offers to the Lord and it's, it's really beautiful. But then he's saying, and you want me to buy a piece of property? Lord, what in the world does this mean? What does what me, you know, the Babylonians are ready to slay us all and take our land and you went and had me buy a piece of property. What is that all about? Well, that's where we come to the fifth section, God's explanation. Uh, Verse 26 is where we pick that up. It says in verse 26, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Now pause for a second. I love this because Jeremiah answered his question, whether he knows it or not, before God ever said a word. Now this is important, I think, for you to see this. God, God, Jeremiah already knew the answer because did you see what he said? Jeremiah says in chapter uh, 32, verse 17. At the end of verse 17, in Jeremiah's oratory as he's praising the Lord, he says, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Did you see that? Compare the end of verse 17 with the end of verse 27. It's Jeremiah saying, Lord, there's nothing too hard for thee, but I just don't understand what's going on. And the Lord says, Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? And Jeremiah be able to say, well, I said earlier that there's not. And the Lord might say, well, then why are you asking the question? Do you understand what I'm saying? Jeremiah already had the answer that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. So this, this doesn't really, don't worry, Jeremiah. You see, what I've found is you and I, especially if you're a person of faith who's in prayer and reading the word, you and I, most of the time, we already know the answers. We just don't want to admit it or, or acknowledge it. We might say, oh, Lord, there's nothing too hard for you, but oh, I have a cold. I don't know if I should pray about this. I have a cold but you just said there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Do you believe that or don't you? Um, see, here's the funny thing. I've found that if a person of faith who's in prayer and reading the Bible have a question, if you just kind of say, Lord, reveal to me the answer, it's amazing how you kind of already know the answer. Have you guys ever found that to be true? Let me illustrate. This happened more back in the old days, but you know, um, uh, as the church has grown bigger and bigger, I haven't been able to meet with as many you know, people in the same way that I used to be able to meet with everybody in the church. It was so great. I remember when the church was hundred people, by the end of a year, I could say, I pretty much met with everyone in the church. It was awesome. When we got to 200, it was a little harder to do that. When we got to 400, it was impossible. It was like, I could meet with, you know, when we got to a thousand, I could meet with the staff and the elders, um, but meeting with all the congregation, that was a thing of the past. When we got to five, 6,000, I've lost my mind at this point. Uh, I don't even know what in the world's happening. Who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? That's where I'm at now. Um, But back in the day, one of the things, one of my tactics uh, that I learned was really uh, a great thing to do. And this wasn't me trying to pass the buck. This was me knowing this is where real help found. But somebody would say, Brad, I'm going through a real difficult time and I need to talk to you. And my schedule would be packed, you know? And so I would just say, you know what, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll meet with you, but I'll meet with you and I would always book it um, because I would try to keep this open for these certain times, Sunday night after Sunday night worship. Now in the pre-COVID days, we used to have a time where we'd gather and worship uh, on Sunday nights, which we'll probably bring that back soon. Um, but Sunday night worship, it was, it was one of the less attended services because it was just strictly prayer and worship And communion, I think it was one of the richest things we do at Eighth Creek. But it was the ill-attended thing. At that time, there'd be 50 or 100 people showing up to Sunday night. But I said, "Tell you what, come to Sunday night, and then I'll meet with you right afterwards." And it wasn't me putting it off or anything like that. There was a tactic, and here was my tactic: I have found that if somebody's going through really hard times and they came to a Sunday night worship where it was just prayer and singing praise to the Lord and people going to their knees in communion and confessing their sins. And then this is always what happened. Almost always the person would come up and I'd say, are you ready to meet? And they'd say, uh, I, don't, I don't need to meet with you. well, well I thought we had to. no, the Lord just met me tonight. He just met me right here, right where I'm at. And I totally know what to do. And I, and the communion service was perfect. It's just what I needed. And I would say, check. <laughs> That's why the Bible says, seek ye first. Pastor Brett? No. Big goof. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added unto you. It, it's almost like for the believer who's, who's truly seeking the Lord, man, the Lord shows up and he'll show you what to do and how to get through your predicament. And, um, and, and sometimes we think, no, I need to talk to somebody. Uh, the answer is yes, but it's that somebody is the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's it's a little bit modeled here by Jeremiah. I don't know what in the world's going on, Lord. You can can do all things. There's nothing too hard for you, Lord, but I need to talk to you. The Lord says, okay, here's what you need to know. There's nothing too hard for me. Like you just said, you already knew the answer. I think that's a truth for a lot of you. I wonder how many of you are missing some of the great nuggets that the Lord's already put right in front of you And you already know what to do, but you think you have to talk to a psychologist or a counselor or a pastor or something. The Lord says, no, I'll I'll reveal my word to you. I'll write it on the table of your hearts under the new covenant. Well, anyway, the Lord starts off with that. Verse 27, he says, "Uh, is there anything too hard for me? Verse 28, therefore thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set on fire this city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it, even unto this day that I should remove it from before uh, my face. Because all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face. That's a sad line. I've got it marked there. Verse 33, they have turned unto me the back and not the face, turning their back on God. Right now, Washington, D.C. is in peril and we sense trouble and National Guardsmen are piled in the Capitol building and sleeping on the floor. And it looks like Beirut in the eighties, if you ask me, it's a strange day that we're living in. And we can argue about why they're there and, and uh, the rationale and all, there's all kinds of craziness going on. But when I look at Washington DC and I see that, and I compare it with Jerusalem of Jer- Jeremiah's time, I don't see much difference. Um, why are we in such peril? Why are we kind of at the precipice of trouble? I think largely we as a nation our Congress, we've, and, and our Congress, and even you know, our court system, you know, the, the three branches, largely we have turned our backs on God. And we wonder why our city, you know, our capital city is, is on the precipice of trouble. Um, I think that what God's doing here to his city, the city that he loves, the city that he puts his name on, If he does that to Jerusalem, I wouldn't be shocked if that's what happens to Washington, D.C. It's just something to think about. So verse 33, they have turned their backs uh, and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early, teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Well, Brett Washington, DC may be bad, but at least we're not frying our children on Moloch's hot incandescent arms. Look it up on Wikipedia, another bastion of truth. Look up Moloch there and you'll see, you know, ancient drawings of what Moloch was. It was a big iron God, bull headed sort of Taurus kind of God. And he would have his hands outstretched and they would lay their babies on the hands and sizzle the babies. By the hundreds, they killed these babies, by the hundreds. Meanwhile, our city is taking an innocent little child out of the mother's womb and murdering it, killing it uh, by the millions by the millions. And we wonder if God is gonna judge America and the United States for what we're doing. This is what God says about the Jews who were doing this to hundreds of their babies and saying, uh, I'm not gonna let that go forever. Verse 36, and now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, whereof you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath and I will bring them again to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me over, uh, pardon me, fear me forever uh, for the good of them and of their children after them. This is so good. Even though they were sinful, murderous, Baal worshiping, Moloch worshiping people, and the Lord punished them and and delivered them to the um, Babylonians, the Lord says, but I'll bring them back. I will not forsake them. Mark verse 39, I will give them one heart. That's the new covenant, I believe. And I will give them one way, and that's Jesus. The Jews don't know it yet, but Jesus is their Messiah and they don't know it. But there's gonna come a time, Romans eleven twenty five 25, where all of Israel shall be saved and they'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but by me. The Jews are gonna see that someday. You and I know it now that Jesus is the way. And so we follow him and hopefully we follow him with one heart. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way. I love that. Verse 40, and I will make an everlasting covenant. How long of a covenant with the Jews is he gonna make? Everlasting, for you replacement theologians, that's hard to spit out, isn't it? Everlasting, (laughs) say it. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. That's the millennial kingdom and that's gonna happen. When the, the second coming of Christ The Jews are gonna be saved, they're gonna believe in Jesus, and he's gonna fix that. Um, Yea, verse 41, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon all of them good that I have promised them. And the field shall be bought in this land. Wherever you say it is desolate, without man or beast, it is given unto the hand of the Chaldeans." Verse 43 is that prophecy fulfilled several times over. It, was, it would be fulfilled in the time of Jeremiah, in the time uh, of um, after the captivity, after the Roman invasion, and even in modern times, the Jews came back and purchased this land with money, the land they live in. It's amazing. Mark verse 43, check it off as fulfilled prophecy. Men, verse 44, shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them. In other words, title deeds and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the valley and in the cities of the south for I will cause their captivity to return saith the Lord. The Lord's explanation of Jeremiah, just go buy the land, go purchase the land because you're the redeemer. It has to do with the way the Lord is gonna redeem the land and it'll be bought back. And there's so many layers of that. The people will pay money, redemption, but Jesus would shed his blood. And instead of silver and gold, Peter said, it was, the redemption was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. What a powerful, powerful truth that is. And we, uh, we see this as something that's happening even before our eyes as the Jews are moving in. Israel's becoming a mighty nation. The only thing left to have happened is, is the rapture of the church, the, the tribulation period, and then Christ is gonna return and rule and reign in Jerusalem. And the Jews are finally gonna see Jerusalem to be the city of peace. That's what it means, Yerushalem. It means uh, the city of peace. Uh, it hasn't been that at all throughout all the ages but it will be when Christ comes. And so will all of us, we'll be at peace as well. I look so forward to the second coming of Christ. Uh, Maranatha, amen? amen? Amen. Lord, we pray that you would come quickly, that your word would just continue to unfold right before our eyes, Lord. It's amazing to see how your word is so relevant and so perfect for the days we live. Give us understanding, give us application of your word, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.